Amen. It's good to be with you. Uh, happy Easter. Good morning. Uh, he is risen. I think if I listen, I can almost hear you say from your houses, He is risen indeed. It's so great to have Amy with us and uh, Josh. That's so good. Uh, good worship today. Hey, before we get into the message, uh, we've got just a special treat. Since the kids are watching at home, since we're all together as families uh, today, uh, just a special treat from one of our own families at church that made a little video for us. Uh, just to remind us that everyone uh, can be affected by Easter, even maybe one of your favorite characters from the movie Frozen. So let's watch together. We need a savior right now. Mary, you're having a baby. Oh, I will, Angel, I will. Judas, dead. Jesus, dead. Mary cries. And then a bunch of other important things happened that I forgot, but all that matters is I was right and Jesus is the son of God, and thus... <gasps> he lives, and so can you. Oh, he lives, he lives! <laughs> Good story. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that, little Olaf. Even Olaf, even he believes in Easter, and uh, the Johnson family put that video together. Uh, all of them did. Steve and Veronica and Sophia, Anna, Trevor, they all had a part in it, and we're just glad that Steve let us use it uh, for Easter. So just a little something for you, a little something extra. I don't know what you're feeling or what you're thinking about this Easter, but I'm pretty sure of one thing, you're going to remember this Easter. I, I bet if I asked you, do you remember what Easter was like in 2012 or 2013 or any random year in the last 10 years, my guess is, is that you, unless something really unique happened that year, like a baby was born or some big life event, you don't remember where you were. Maybe you don't even remember who you had Easter brunch or lunch with or specifics about that Easter, but you will never forget this Easter. This Easter will be etched in your memory. And we all get a chance to experience Easter in a brand new way. As we said on Thursday night, maybe most like what the disciples were experiencing, a little bit alone, a little bit by themselves, waiting, unsure, fearful of the future. And that's what this Easter is like. I said on Thursday night, and I just repeat it for those of you that weren't listening, I wonder if this may become one of my favorite Easter's because it gives us a chance to, to reset, to rethink our priorities, or maybe even change how we view our faith, maybe test our beliefs. What do we know for certain? What do we believe is core about who we are and who Jesus is, what God is even doing in the world? Most of the time as we go through our schedule, as we go through our normal daily lives, our lives are too full for us to change much. Change, if we really want to engage in it, usually involves adding something. Sometimes it's taking something away, but even then we're adding something else in. And so usually our lives are too full to add anything in. And so change has a very hard time taking root, us thinking differently, us viewing faith in a more authentic way. But now, with everything being taken off the plate, with so much of our lives being upended and many of our schedule, our routine, all of us changed, we get a chance to have a bit of a reset. You have to take away to add. And I don't know if you've noticed or not or have read some of the science headlines, but the world has changed significantly in the last month. In fact, I don't know if you caught this, seismologists are telling us that the tectonic plates that we live on are vibrating less. They are more still. Cosmically, all over the earth, 
that the ground is vibrating less because fewer trains are running, automobiles are not doing their thing, uh, some manufacturing has shut down, and seismologists can actually measure how much less vibration is even occurring. Maybe you've seen pictures of cities like L.A. that are normally covered in smog in certain areas. Because of the cars that are off the road, it's clear. People are breathing easier. Maybe you've seen a picture of Times Square that's completely empty. Or even Delhi in India. Normally a, a haze hangs over the city, but the sky is, is clear now. You have to take away some things before you can begin to see clearly. And my hope and my prayer is that the stillness that is covering the earth right now, the clarity that we can see into the sky with, that that same stillness and that same clarity will take a deep root in your life. And that as you view the resurrection from a very specific lens, that maybe some things will begin to shift for you. I know they have for me over the last week. And my hope is that that will continue over the weeks to come. Thursday night, we had communion together as a church, and we were with the disciples. We were with Jesus uh, the night before he was killed and crucified. We're going to pick up the story right there, and here's, here's what Luke says. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, Luke begins to describe the, the brutality uh, and the ugliness, the, the reality of the crucifixion. Now, this road that we've been on, this road for the last several weeks where Jesus began to make his way, he set himself resolutely toward the city of Jerusalem. This is the destination, a crucifixion. When Jesus says, follow me, he means I'm headed to Jerusalem. And not just to visit the city, not just to go there for Passover, but I'm headed to Jerusalem, and it's going to mean my death, a crucifixion. And when Jesus says to me and he says to you, the invitation to follow him. Follow me, Jesus says. And what he's saying is, I'll, I'll go first, but I'm going to show you where we're headed. I'll go first, but I want you to understand what the destination is. You're being invited to walk down this same road. And it's true, absolutely scriptural true, that, that Jesus died in our stead, in our place on the cross, forgiveness of sins, reconciling us to God. But he also said to every one of his followers that the role that we play, the part that we are engaged in is to follow him daily by taking up our own cross and marching thoughtfully, even resolutely toward our own self-denial. And this is what Jesus has invited us to. It's part of the Easter story. It's part of the gospel narrative. Jesus made it clear when he talked to his disciples and the words recorded for us in Scripture. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Of course, he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. But he still says, in this world you will have trouble. Peter, in one of his letters in the New Testament, says, do not be surprised at this incredible trial that you're going through. You need to know this and understand it. Because there's some different gospels out there that are tempting, that are alluring. Listen close. The death of Jesus does not insulate us from hardship or pain or suffering. When Jesus went through the cross for us and on our behalf, that didn't mean that we also won't experience a difficult time through life. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And as Luke tells us what occurs 
They crucified him there with the criminals. And then he goes on to say, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon for the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is incredible imagery. Luke doesn't include the detail, but Matthew does that the, the temple that separate the, the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple area. It was torn in two, but it was torn from top to bottom. This beautiful imagery, this beautiful picture of God saying from top to bottom, the temple, that's the curtain that separated me from you, that's the curtain that kept you away from the absolute center of my presence in God's temple, that's gone. You are reconciled. You have been brought into the presence of God. And the presence of God goes with you wherever you are. It's not in a building. It's not at a church. It's in your home. It's in your workplace. It's everywhere you might find yourself. Beautiful picture. And this happens simultaneous with the death of Jesus. Jesus called out with a loud voice, and this is the last thing Jesus would say. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Friday afternoon, the Jewish Sabbath was about to begin, and Jesus is dead. Now, Luke tells us that there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a part of the Jewish ruling council, but he didn't agree with the decision to crucify Jesus. He was sympathetic, and he was friends with Nicodemus, and the two of them, even though they were in the Jewish inner circle, they didn't agree at all with the direction of the religious leaders. And so Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate. He went to the authorities and asked for the body of Jesus. They gave him the body of Jesus. And Luke tells us that he, Joseph of Arimathea, took it down. He, he wrapped it in a linen cloth. He placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It would have been a tomb for a wealthy man. Joseph was probably wealthy. And it would have been a tomb that he would have had for somebody in his family. In fact, this helps you understand the affection, uh, the endearment he had towards Jesus, that he would place him in his own tomb. And it was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now, now the disciples, the friends, the women that were disciples of Jesus as well, they're all watching this occur. And they're all thinking the very same thing. It's, it's over. This week has not turned out like we thought. I mean, just days before, James and John were arguing about who was going to sit at Jesus' right and left when he established his kingdom and kicked Rome out of Jerusalem and made really the center of religious activity for the Jews the center of the universe. And now, everything they have hoped for, everything that they wanted, has evaporated and disappeared right in front of their very eyes. And not only that, but their friend, their good friend, their dear friend is now dead. And now at the end of this week, that it started with a, the joy of the triumphal entry, now this week is over and it's ended and they're desolate, they're desperate, and they're asking this one simple question, what do we do now? What do we do? And I'm sure that most of the disciples, uh, Thomas, maybe Bartholomew, Thad Thaddeus, looked at uh, probably Peter and James and John, these inner three, uh, these key leaders among the disciples. What do we do now? And, and I'm sure they would think the very same thing. I don't know. What are you asking me for? I have no idea. I didn't know it was going to happen like this. I did not expect this to occur. This is not part of our plan. It's not what we had counted on. 
when we ask this question, what do we do now? We had no idea. There's no playbook for this. There's not an if-then for this. When we ask this question open-handedly, in humility, confused and scared, uncertain, insecure, this is when God shows up in the most powerful ways. And he does it in almost every scriptural story you can read from the beginning of God's story in Genesis all the way to the end of the book. What do we do now? It feels like there's no solution. Maybe you've felt that way over the last few weeks. Unsure what God is going to do. How will he meet you in the middle of this difficult time? You have questions, you have bills, you have relationships that are maybe pulled or stretched to their limits. What do we do now? How is God going to help us get through this? It feels like there's no way out. And if you've felt that way before, you're in good company. It's how the disciples felt. I love how Bob Goff says it. This is what he says. Darkness fell, his friends scattered, and hope seemed lost. But heaven just started counting to three. Now, counting to three, well, it doesn't take long unless you're counting days. Friday night, Jesus is dead. Moving into the Sabbath on Saturday, all of this happening in the context of what is supposed to be the celebration of the Passover. Normally this is an incredible time for Jewish men and women and Jewish families celebrating God's provision, celebrating God showing up when there seemed like there was no way out, celebrating God, saving them, keeping the Israel nation in security and moving them to a place of safety. But now the disciples feel unmoored, left alone, desperate. But heaven just started counting to three. So it's in this spot that we find ourselves right now, not just in this crisis, but in many other ways, in between Friday and in between Sunday. And between these two days, Jesus is dead, gone, and the resurrection is yet to occur. We're unsure what God is up to. We're unsure about how he might lead us forward. It's in that space that we get to open-handedly wait. And waiting is so hard. You can imagine what the disciples had to do, waiting through Friday, all day Saturday, into Saturday night, waiting, hiding, wondering, unsure about what would be next. We don't have to wait very long before Luke begins to give us the end of the story. But if you rush too quickly past Saturday, then you miss the feelings that they would have felt and understanding that their feelings are your feelings. Their feelings are your experience when you're unsure about what is next. Luke begins the next chapter and it starts like this. But very early on Sunday morning, the women, he'll tell us who in a moment, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. It was a a hurry. It was a rush job on Friday. They had to take care of business before the Sabbath started. And so they went ahead and placed him in his place and wrapped him up. Joseph Arimathea, probably some help from Nicodemus as they placed him in the tomb. The women who took the spices to the tomb area, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now that the Sabbath is over, they're ready to go take care of business, but they walk up onto a scene that is strange. It's unsettling. It's confusing. They aren't sure what to expect now that they see what they did not expect to see. 
And so with the stone out of the way, they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Stone is moved. Jesus is missing. And they stood there puzzled. And suddenly two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. Now all of a sudden two strange men show up along with some weird lights flickering or shining, who knows what. Incredibly disorienting, but these two dudes ask a really interesting question. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, great question. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Now, I would have loved to have been somewhere, maybe up in the heavenlies, when these two angels rehearsed what they're about to do. God, God gave them this assignment. You need to go down. It's the empty tomb. It's kind of a big deal. It's not a bit part. It's really kind of a starring role. I mean, come on, Jesus is resurrected, and you're going to introduce this idea to the very first people to happen upon the tomb. And so maybe God gave them the, the latitude or the liberty to come up with their own lines, and one of the angels probably in his Genius said, I got it, I got it. Here's, here's what we'll say, here's the line. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? And the other angel would have said, ah, oh, it's genius. Can I say that? And they would have argued about it. And then they have one more bit, of course. This is just a rhetorical question that they're asking. Because if they're asking this question, the women are looking at each other thinking, well, we came here because this is where we left him. Because he was dead. This is where you put somebody who's dead. And they say, he isn't here. He is risen from the dead. And then they go on to say this. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hand, into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Incredible. He's not here. Stone is gone. And he reminds them of what Jesus taught while they were in his presence. Now, what's their reaction? Well, they rush back. They rush back into the city. They find their friends, the other disciples, and many others, and they tell them exactly what happened. In fact, Luke, in this point, tells us who was there. The women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women. They told all the others what they saw and exactly what the angels said. And Peter is listening. He's paying attention all the men are there, and this is what Luke says. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. Make of that what you will. So they didn't believe it. But it does sound like nonsense, doesn't it? It does sound like something that somebody would have made up, somebody who's hoping against hope that it hasn't ended, that it's not over. While they're listening, Peter got up and he ran to the tomb to see for himself, and he gets there. He sees that the stone is rolled away. He walks up to the edge of the tomb. He peers inside. He, in fact, even goes inside the tomb. And he sees the, the linen, the, the grave clothes, laying there empty where Jesus should be. And as he sees those, he looks around. And then Luke says, then he went home again, wondering what had happened. He still hadn't put it together. Now, here's what's incredible about the, the, 
resurrection stories in Scripture, in all the Gospels. So interesting that this would be included in the Gospels. Jesus explained it over and over again. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be hurt. They're going to crucify me, and on the third day, I will rise again. He says it again and again and again and again. He predicted it. He taught it. He explained it. And he's doing all of this while he is healing the sick, proving the fact that he's the Messiah, raising the dead, multiplying food, all of this you would think would be cemented into the minds and the hearts of the disciples. That Jesus said this is what's going to happen. He said it's going to occur just like this. And as all of that begins to unfold in front of them, the disciples that he picked, the ones that he handpicked among whoever else he could have chosen, they see it unfold before their very eyes and they just walk away wondering what had happened. It's incredible to me. It's unbelievable, in fact, that they could have Jesus in front of them explaining all of this, and yet they don't believe it. In fact, it would take them a while to believe it. I mean, it would take several appearances on the behalf of Jesus, the risen Jesus, for the disciples to even begin to buy the fact that he was resurrected. In fact, Peter, for him to believe it, he's got to be out on a boat, this miraculous catch of fish to occur. Jesus is on the shore, and then Jesus has to cook and feed him breakfast in the physical for Peter to begin to believe it. I mean, think about Thomas. Thomas has all of his best friends who he has spent day and night with for the last three years tell him beyond the shadow of a doubt Jesus is alive, and we have seen him. And Thomas says to them, to the man, face to face, I will not believe it. I will not believe it unless I see him, unless I touch his wounds, unless I put my hands in his wounds, in his side. And Jesus, in his compassion, then begins to show up to Thomas so that Thomas would believe. And Jesus says this to Thomas not long after he appears to him in that same setting. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Is that why you believe, Thomas, because I'm here in front of you? Because Thomas, of course, then confesses, once he sees the wounds of Jesus, I believe. Have you believed because you have seen me? And then Jesus says something about me and you. Everyone who has lived ever since Jesus had ascended to the Father, and those of us who have believed in who he was and who he is in the resurrection, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, Jesus is saying, how much harder it is for you, how hard is it for me, for those of us who didn't get to walk with Jesus on this earth, to believe in the reality of the resurrection. How hard is it for you to believe it? I know we say we believe it, but what would it look like if we truly leaned our hearts and minds toward the reality of the resurrection? What would it mean for us? We so rarely do that. I mean, let's be honest. There's no wonder that our lives don't look all that different from the people who don't even believe at all. So many times there's not even any distinction between followers of Jesus and everyone else. I mean, I mean, surely God just didn't intend for people who follow Jesus to be just a little bit more moral or just busy on Sunday morning. 
There has to be more to it than that. Now, I'm assuming if you're listening today, and maybe it's a wrong assumption, so forgive me, but, but I'm assuming that you believe in the resurrection, that I don't have to convince you that Jesus really rose from the dead. And there may be a few skeptics listening, but just understand that's where I'm starting today. And if I w- were going to try to convince you that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that would be a completely different sermon. I mean, I could talk to you about the veracity, the, the truthfulness of the scriptures, and why we can trust them, and why the accounts that are in the Bible are worth putting your life toward. I, I could talk to you about why the disciples would give their life, not for what they had been told, not for what that they were taught, but for what they had seen, eyewitnesses and the power of their lives and the fact that they gave their lives for the very thing that they had seen and so many other reasons that would help you maybe lean into the truth. But again, that's a whole nother sermon. That's not this sermon. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then I believe the place for us to grow, in fact, the place of friction in our life, the the place of difficulty for us to live it out is this. I, I believe that if we believed in the reality of the resurrection, then our lives would look very different than they look today. And I believe this is true of me, and it might even be true of you. That if the truth of what the scriptures say about what it means for Jesus to have come back from the dead. The truth that if he was, in fact, in the tomb, in a cold, dark tomb, his lifeless body suddenly began to move and his heart began to beat and his brain woke up again and the dead, lifeless body of Jesus came back to life. If this is true, then there are so many things that need to become different about who we are. And how we live, that the reality of the resurrection takes a deep root. It's not just a theological truth, but it's a reality that changes everything in us from the inside out and with our every relationship that we have. I mean, if we believed in the reality of the resurrection, the way we approach fear would be very, very differently. I mean, according to the resurrection, According to the book of Hebrews, in fact, very specifically, when Jesus came back from the dead, when Jesus was killed and came back from the dead, that he conquered the power of death and freed us from the slavery of the fear of death. And in fact, all of our fears should be at least put at bay, somewhat assuaged by the fact that Jesus came back from the dead. And that doesn't mean that we wouldn't fear But when we do fear, we would even come to God in this way and we would say, Lord, I I fear the future. It, It seems uncertain to me. But I believe if it's true that Jesus was killed and he came back from the dead, that if you can handle that, you can handle my circumstances in my marriage or with my kids or with my job. And if that's true, Lord, then I should trust you. You know far more than me. And so we would embrace our fears They're normal. I mean, the reason it says it so many times in the Bible, do not fear, is because so many people are afraid. There's so much to fear. But the reality of the resurrection would mean that we have a place to take our fears and we lay them at God's feet. Look, if we believed in the reality of the resurrection, then our hope would be so much different. I mean, if you're like me, anything like me at all, then your hope migrates over time. It migrates from what God is doing and what God hopes to do in the future and what we trust and believe that God is up to, to the here and now, because I, I want what I want and I want it now. And, and maybe you feel the same way. And as our hope migrates away from 
the future that God has promised to us and even the now and the reality of how he's at work when it migrates to the here and the now or how we can get our own needs met as our hope begins to migrate, well, then we remember that if our hope isn't in God that we begin to feel hopeless. When hopelessness begins to take root, it it ought to be a signal to us that something is amiss, that our hearts are placing their affection in the wrong ways, the wrong places, the wrong outcomes, the wrong goals, the wrong values, the wrong priorities. So this is why the psalmist said, why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. And so we would confess this. We would bring the reality of the resurrection that would come to bear on the, the truth of our hope. And we begin to put it in a new place, in a different way. Look, if, if we believed in the reality of the resurrection, we would love differently. We would love so much differently. I mean, the resurrection is God's best example of how his love is impartial. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. The crucifixion and the resurrection both rolled into this one truth of the gospel means that we have no place to judge anyone else. We have no reason or basis to put people into different categories, into good sinners and really bad sinners or really different from us or people that don't deserve God's grace or mercy because they've just worn him out. If anybody has worn him out, it's been me, maybe even you. If we believed in the reality of the resurrection, then we would love freely. Nobody would come into our presence without experiencing the unconditional love and mercy of God. No longer will we cast a side eye or a downward glance at someone. The love that they would feel in our presence would draw them into who God is every time. I mean, that's, just, that's not all. We're just beginning, right? If I believed in the reality of the resurrection, then I would approach my work differently. I wouldn't work just for income or, or to build my little kingdom even bigger. I wouldn't work for more stuff. I wouldn't work for the comfort of a 401k or the security of my retirement. If this were the truth, if it really is true that Jesus came back from the dead and that eternity is planted in the hearts of men and women, then I would view everything about my work differently. And when the market stumbles, when I lose my job, when I have insecurity about what is to come, then I bring all of those things to bear on the kingdom of God and the resurrection of Jesus. And I would believe that God is guiding me and leading me, even though it feels like I don't know what the future will bring. The resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, what changes everything For followers of Jesus that don't want to live just a normal, paint-by-numbers, run-of-the-mill life, the reality of resurrection means that God's kingdom isn't just something that we can hope for down the road or that God will one day take us to heaven. In fact, Jesus says something very different than that. Here's what Jesus said. He said very clearly in all the Gospels, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's present with us. It's right here. It's not not something just for the future or one day. It's right now. And then he goes on to say in the Lord's Prayer, when he's teaching us how to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look, the, the world doesn't need Christian men and women 
who are willing to recite platitudes about how everything is going to be okay. Look around, we know better. In fact, at the moment, everyone is certain that things won't be okay. What the world needs, followers of Jesus who understand that God's kingdom is here, it is present. It isn't just a future reality that we hope for that will come one day. Jesus said we live in that reality right now. What the world needs are followers of Jesus, men and women and teenagers and kids that can know and believe that this is true and they can enter into the mess of this world with the courage and the conviction that the hope of the resurrection, the power of Jesus is fully resident, fully present in our lives, in our hearts, and our minds. And we bring that hope to bear on a world that is hopeless, that has no footing, that believes that even the curse, the sickness, the illness of a virus could destroy all of the happiness and the joy that God has created in the world. And we know that that is no longer the case. What we believe is that God's kingdom is here. And in spite of the headlines, in spite of what we see, God is calling me and you to live differently, to experience his love and mercy and the power of the resurrection in our everyday lives so that people can know God's unconditional love, what it means to be reconciled to him, that we could bring the kingdom of heaven here today. You know, uh... A lot of us think that the purpose Jesus came was to try to help us get to heaven after we die. Well, I'd like to raise some serious questions about that based on the New Testament. I'd like to suggest Jesus didn't come here to tell us how to get to heaven after we die primarily. He came to talk to us about how the kingdom of heaven can happen here on earth while we're here and when our children or our grandchildren are here. Uh, maybe what we should do is we should get Jesus to uh, edit the Lord's Prayer. So we should edit the Lord's Prayer to sound more like the way we think. It should say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May we go to heaven after we die. May we leave here and go to your kingdom in heaven, which is unlike earth, because there your will is done. But that's not what the, the Lord's Prayer says. It says, May your kingdom come here. May your will be done down here on earth as it is in heaven. Very different understanding of what Jesus is about when we see his message centered on the kingdom. But what does that mean? What does the kingdom of God mean? Well, it, it changes the way you look at people who are different. You stop rich, look at the poor in a different way. The poor look at the rich in a different way. Uh, people look at people of other races and other religions in a different way. You can't look at someone of a different political party the same way and be be faithful to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God makes you look at creation in a different way. You look at the trees and the sky and the air and the water in a different way. This is now my father's world. It's my father's uh, beautiful artwork that I, it's not just natural resources for me to make a buck off of. If you're taking the kingdom of God seriously, you look at peace and reconciliation and conflict and war in a very different way. Uh, it's easy if you're in the kingdoms of this world to bomb people and kill people and uh, throw them in prison and throw away the key. If you're part of the kingdom of God, you can't treat other people that way. You have to look at it from a new perspective, a new point of view, higher point of view. Jesus said things like, if you give a cup of cold water to somebody in my name, 
If you see someone who's in prison and you go to visit them, if you see someone who's naked and you give them clothing, if you welcome a little child, you know, in those moments, God's will is being done on earth because God cares about that little child and God cares about that forgotten person in prison. When somebody loves their enemy, they're living by the way of the kingdom. In, on the human level, people see an enemy and they hate them. You love your friends, you hate your enemies. But when people love their enemies, they're manifesting the kingdom of God. When rich people decide that they're not going to use their wealth and power to keep aggrandizing themselves and improving their own portfolio, but when they reach a point, they say, gosh, I have enough. And there are people in such need. Now I'm going to use my money and my time and my energy and my voice and my vote on behalf of people who are suffering and poor and oppressed and forgotten. At that point, I'm not just a citizen of this world. At that point, I'm acting as a citizen of God's kingdom. I'm living out the way and the teaching and the example of Jesus. Those are some of the things, some of the ways the kingdom of God is a liberating and yet disturbing uh, message for people today. So this is the question we'll ask this week. How are we bringing the kingdom of God here to earth? That if we truly believe that we believe in a resurrected king, that he lives in us, that he changes us from the inside out, then he can also change what we bring to the world, that we bring a different kind of hope, a different kind of love, that in our relationships, that in our work, the resurrected king is fully present and transforms not just who we are, but everything that we do. And may we bring that to the world around us, especially through this trying time, difficult season. What the world needs now more than anything else is the hope of resurrection. And so Lord, we ask and we pray that you would allow us to be your representatives, your agents, your people here on earth, that we would be able to bring to earth the power of your kingdom, the power of resurrection, the hope of love, the reality of new life. And as we do that, Lord, may we give you all of the glory and may you transform the way we love and forgive the way we give grace and mercy. What you do in us and through us as we go to places of work, as we work from home, as we build relationships and friendships. Lord, we believe in your transformative power. So first in us and, and then through all the things that we do, we pray that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray all of this and ask for every bit of it in the power of the name of your Son, his beautiful name that we lift up today, the resurrected one. In his name, we pray all of this. Amen.